the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When you think about all the layers of American life that has been interrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, they are numerous, they are gargantuan, and they probably reach into aspects of daily life that you and I seldom ever think about. And yet the impact can be significant and severe. For example, have you thought for a moment about what happens to the nation's children who are currently in crises? I'm talking about kids that are in foster parenting. Perhaps they've been recently removed from a home. Maybe there's been cases of abuse or neglect. Children that are on the vulnerable edges of our society today, those most at risk in a time when social workers can't get out to do visits. Courts are not open to have discussions about what's the best disposition for a child. To be sure, it's a mess and it could only get worse as time goes along. To offer some insights, we're joined now by a gentleman who is the CEO and president of Bethany Christian Services. By the way, it is the nation's largest global Christian social services organization that deals with at-risk children and foster care, emergency care, adoption services. They also even reach out to refugees and immigrants, both locally here in the United States and across the globe. Chris, Chris Polsky has also been with World Relief and World Vision. And Chris, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Oh, thanks for having me today. Chris, this is an issue that I know uh, perhaps the average American doesn't pause to really think about, um, but I think it bears some serious thought and consideration, and that is some of the most vulnerable. We on our program have talked about how the impact of COVID-19 has put greater stress on certain vulnerable communities like the homeless, for example. But I guess few of us have really thought about the nation's millions of at-risk children who are in difficult circumstances. Maybe they've recently been removed from a home because of neglect or abuse. And suddenly they're in the middle of what almost seems to be sort of a, a, a legal no man's land, at least for the moment. Well, we've got two things going on there. Um, yeah, kids that were vulnerable suddenly became more vulnerable. So their fragile lives. Um, suddenly became more difficult. And that, that refers to kids that are in foster care, but also kids who are maybe experiencing abuse and neglect, and we're just not seeing it right now because everyone's in, in lockdown. And, of course, with that, uh, this has really stymied the ability of many of the normal safety nets that are in place for them to kind of do their jobs. I'm thinking about child protective services that would do in-home visits, social workers, people of this sort that are there on an ongoing basis to make sure that these most vulnerable children are being cared for, that their needs are being met under even under, well, quite frankly, normal circumstances that are difficult for them, that it's got to raise now the, 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 the ire of concern to a pretty significant level, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, we've had to be really creative with how we do our work because before we would always go into homes and, and you know, do the normal visits or also the visits between the, the child and the parents. Our goal is always try to reunify whenever possible um, a child who's in foster care with their bio parents or parents. 
Um, so we've had to be very creative. We've actually um, been using a lot of telemental health. Um, we've been using televisits, um, using iPads, computers. And, uh, yeah, so our world has suddenly changed, and we've had to use technology to um, try to keep things moving because we want to make sure that these kids have connections with their families. We need to make sure that they're in a good, loving environment um, right now. So we've had to use technology to the extreme. And, you know, I think of a moment when children under normal circumstances that are in these these vulnerable areas um, that are already facing emotional, spiritual challenges, and now with all the uncertainty, trying to explain to an 8-year-old, a 15-year-old, what's going on in the world around them when everything on the news every night is all death and loss of life, um, and, and the opportunity to be able to keep those families connected to have that kind of support system is so critically important at a time like this, and yet it sounds like you find yourself really challenged with the exception of the availability of technology to keep those connections open. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's been, it's been a, a, you know, a recent change. It was a fast change, and uh, we're just an environment we're having to live with. So you're right. These kids have faced you know, um, abuse and neglect. Um, they're coming from very vulnerable homes. So their lives and their their view on life has been very fragile. So, um, yeah, and then you add this 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 virus on top of it. So kids who are already in in need of love, of care, counseling, um, wraparound services, um, it is more difficult to get those services to them. And I think that's where really we've had to innovate because um, we want to make sure that those kids are getting those needed services. Um, we would prefer we could do it face to face. We want to make sure that you know we are we, they do have connection with people, um, with their counselors, with their parents, and that's why we've been going back to technology as much as possible. Um, we're hoping this again won't last forever, but I think it's also increasing the speed with which we're able to connect with clients, with kids, and with families. Um, so I think at the end of this crisis, which we pray for will end soon, um, but we're preparing for the long run, our business will look much different. So um, technology will be a much greater part of, of, of that world. Um, but we still want to make sure that there is the human touch and also the spiritual touch um, in this work. In terms of the, the legal machine itself, help us understand there, and I realize that's not what you guys do, but you interact with it on an ongoing basis, on a daily basis. And when I think of things like child protective services, the court system, we've heard stories that many courts nationwide are completely shut down with the exception of emergency situations. And I don't know what that a court necessarily sees the returning of a child back to their their natural parents as an emergency or not. But in light of all that's happened in terms of, of having to maintain social distancing, do you find cases where things that need urgent attention by the courts are failing to get that attention? And what of the job of social workers? Kids are in circumstances where sometimes maybe it's a hotbed because the parents are dealing with drug abuse, or maybe there's financial pressures there and the parents take it out on the kids. Now, all of a sudden, we've not added just the financial pressure, but this close quarter environment where getting out of the house or sending the kids over to grandma and grandpa's is no longer an option. How are those issues exacerbated the challenges that many of these children face normally? Sure. So kind of on a micro scale or a quick version. Um, so we get children that are, um, have been removed from their families for a reason. Typically um, it's for abuse or neglect. And how people find out that the children are being abused or neglected is um, usually through the school. 
school sees it, they report it to the, the, the Department of Children's Services in the state. Um, they investigate that. The child's taken out. What Bethany does is we recruit foster homes. So Bethany recruits foster homes typically through the church. Um, we work through by with the church whenever possible to be the hands and feet of Christ. And then um, we place the child in that foster home after they've been trained. It's a several-month process to get trained and certified, and they do background checks. And then that child stays with that foster family until um, he, is, he or she is able to be reunited with um, the, the biological family. We say bio family. Um, and that's, that's the case about 70% of the time. Um, but that's not always the case. So then we would look at foster care adoption, and we'd also recruit through by with the church um, to find homes um, for um, children that are in need of a forever home. So right now you've got about 440,000 kids in the foster care system in the United States. And typically the court system is working and they're trying to reunite the, the child with the, the, the parents. But um, as we've seen, it's kind of grounded to a halt. So it's gone very slow. Um, it's difficult for um, courts to do anything. Um, of course, we're on kind of self-quarantine in, in most states throughout the United States. So, um, yeah, it's become much more difficult. And I think what we're seeing is that the courts are slower and also, this is drawn out much longer than anyone has expected. So the foster parents who have agreed to take in these children, it's, it's going on much longer than they had ever imagined. We've got stressors from um, the court system. We've got stressors um, from where these kids came from. You've got stressors from the, 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 the virus. And then also you've got these, these wonderful parents, foster parents who have stepped up. It's continuing, and it's um, not coming to an end anytime soon. So... What we're, we're expecting is that at the end of this, you're going to have children that, first of all, are, um, and it's, this is not the foster homes, but in, in regular homes that are, are facing abuse and neglect that are not being reported because their teachers are not seeing this or social services are not seeing this. Um, so it's not being reported. So children are not being taken out of that, that environment. At the same time, you have foster parents who are taking care of kids for a much longer period than maybe they had imagined. So we're going to see burnout from a lot of these parents when um, the, the child is able to be reunited with uh, the, the family. So it's almost like a V. You've got kids that are going to be coming into the system, it's like a tidal wave. And then you've got um, foster parents, which are going to be leaving the system. So it's, it's a perfect storm brooming, uh, brooming coming about um, that we just want to get ready for now. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that these kids are taken care of um, in their foster homes. And we're, we're, we're doing a pretty good job with technology. But at the same time, we want to get ready for this tidal wave, the tidal wave of kids that we believe are coming into the foster care system once they're able to um, go back to school, once they're able to uh, interact with their friends, because that's when things get reported. So it's a perfect storm. And clearly is what you describe right now, even the steps that are being taken to um, provide short-term resolution, um, they are indeed just that, short-term. Technology is great, but um, it, there are things that technology cannot replace like the human touch. Along with that, as you suggest, uh, what may very well be a significant spike as time goes on and as shelter-in-place rules uh, continue to be there and financial pressures and the closeness um, in a family that perhaps was already dysfunctional before this happened. And now all of this added pressure has been put into the scenario that creates this pressure cooker that perhaps has no relief valve. And sadly, sometimes the only relief valve is things being taken out on the children. 
Chris Polonsky is with us today. He is the president of Bethany Christian Services. Information available online at bethany.org. That's bethany.org. As Chris describes this perfect storm, when we come back, maybe in the midst of that storm, it's an ideal opportunity for the church. We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest in this segment is the president and CEO of Bethany Christian Services, Chris Polowski. Chris has been involved with the organization for many years now. And um, if you're not familiar with the work of Bethany Christian Services, they are one of the world's leading Christian social service organizations. They specialize in at-risk children providing things like arranging for foster care, emergency care, adoption services. They also have a component that caters to the needs of refugees and immigrants, and their footprint is not just here nationally, but globally as well. We've been talking about the pressure of COVID-19, the quarantine, and all that it's brought to bear on at-risk children in America today. Upwards of 440,000, I think you mentioned, Chris, in the last segment, that are in the foster care system today. And as you mentioned, Parents that took the kids on a short-term basis that find out that's going to be lengthening because there's no home available to move them to. Um, Children that are going to be coming into the system as parents are not dealing well with the pressure brought to bear by COVID-19, take it out on the kids. And so it is, as you described, that perfect storm. But I'm thinking in the midst of that perfect storm may be a perfect opportunity for the church to step up and significantly get involved. Talk to us a bit about the partnership that exists between Bethany Christian Services and the body of Christ and and how you can help essentially raise an army to get involved in making a difference in the lives of at-risk children. Sure, that would be, I'd, I'd love that. Um, you know, we're in the middle of this perfect storm, and the world is stressed out, and these vulnerable kids and families are facing stressors. Um, it's a challenging time. This is probably a challenging time that we haven't seen in at least my generation. Um, and this is the perfect time. This is the exact moment that the church can step up and do something about it. I used to say that Christ called us to be in the middle of the mess. I mean, because Bethany works with vulnerable kids in the U.S. We work, you know, with immigrants, refugees. We work in uh, refugee camps globally. We, we work in the middle of the mess. And I believe that's where Christ was calling his followers to be. And somebody actually said to me one day and said, Actually, Chris, that's where Jesus is. He's in the middle of the mess. And I said, you're right, and he wants us to be there with him. So we've got this mess going on right now. Um, specifically in the U.S., there's this perfect storm for foster care. We've got parents um, who are going to be going, uh, foster parents who are going to be going out of the system, and we're going to see a decline in foster parents. And the need is just going to be increasing with the stresses that are out there. I mean, 6.6 million people, was it last week, applied for unemployment insurance? So vulnerable families have suddenly become more vulnerable, more fragile, and typically we see that abuse and neglect are taken out of the kids during stressful times. Um, so we feel it's a great time for the church to step up. And I just say, I would say, do something. There's so many things that can be done. Um, so during the time of this virus, it could be even a small thing. Um, it could be checking on your neighbor to make sure your neighbor's okay and has groceries or toilet paper or whatever. Um, it could be checking on that foster family that you know and making sure that their needs are being met because it's a stressful time for them and they've got extra kids or kids 
in their home, and they need, need help from you. And it's, it's great for a church to do, to do wraparound services for a foster family. Or I would encourage people to step up and become a foster parent. Um, this is the time of need. It takes several months to go through the process. We believe this is going to be like a V. You're going to see people leaving the system, uh, but you're going to see more kids coming into the system once the doors are open again and kids are able to be identified as abused and neglected. So it's the perfect time for the church to step up and be the hands and feet of Christ during this vulnerable, uh, I'd say scary time. It's a perfect time not to be scared or act out of fear. It's a perfect time for the church to, to act out of faith and belief and know that our our everything resides in Christ. Do you anticipate a spike in the need for social services for for certain um, categories? I think, for example, of a lot of the vulnerable kids that are reaching the age when right now, unfortunately, they're coming close to being essentially, uh, you know, phased out of the foster care system because they're of that age. And so Mm -hmm. now they come into a, a very scary world where suddenly... Um, employment opportunities are significantly impacted. There's already stress on social services because of so many people dealing with so many issues. How, how critical of an area is that going to be as a category for the church? That has always been probably the most fragile population out there. Um, I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but I want to say, so when uh, a girl ages out of foster care and she's not involved with a foster family or a family, um, I think it's around a 75% chance she'll become pregnant by the age of 22. There's, I want to say, the greater than a 30% chance that she'll become involved um, in sex trade. Um, for boys, there's a greater than a 50% chance, and please don't quote me, there's a greater, I believe there's a greater than a 50% chance that um, that child who ages out without contact or relationship with a family will end up incarcerated by the age of 22. So, I mean, the statistics are horrible. Um, and right now, with services lacking, foster homes lacking, kids have suddenly become more vulnerable, especially those kids that are going to be aging out of the foster care system. So um, it's so important for the church to step up and be the hands and feet of Christ with these older kids, because I think a lot of people are willing to, to take in a baby or, you know, maybe a, a one-year-old, which is great. There's definitely a need for that. What's tough are these older kids that have been from home to home to home um, they need foster homes, and they also need forever homes. So I think it was last year um, there was a need for 123,000 homes um, for kids that were um, their, their parental rights had been terminated, meaning that they could not return home because their homes were so uh, abusive and they were not allowed to go back there. So the, the number is very similar right now. So right now there's around 120,000 kids that are in need of home, and they're not uh, usually the, the, the babies. They're usually a little older kids, and those are the kids that really need a forever home. They need the, the, they need the church. They need the church to step up and, and just wrap around these kids. As you point out, Chris, for those of us that are aware of families that are maybe on our block or in our church that are currently foster parenting, that may be facing some challenges right now, that maybe we can lend a little bit of a a helping hand, there's an ideal opportunity for the church to step forward in that arena. But let's think long term. As you indicate, uh, this could be the, the lull before the storm. And even under the best of circumstances on any given day, having 440,000 children across America in the foster parenting system is, in my mind, 440,000 children too many. 
for those listening that say, you know, we, we've kind of toyed around with this idea, but I, I don't, we don't know where to go to find out more information. We're not even sure if we're really cut out for this, but we'd like to find out more. What resources are available through Bethany for families out there to consider whether or not even becoming a foster parent might be for them? Sure. I would encourage people to go to www.bethany.org or call 1-800-BETHANY. And we will walk beside you as you go through this. Maybe you want to volunteer and help out a family um, who is going through foster care and just provide support. Maybe you want to become um, a foster parent. Maybe you want to become an adoptive parent. But going through that whole process, we will walk beside you step by step. We don't want you to feel like you're out there alone. Um, As you enter the system, we're there with you. As you're going through it, we're there with you. And we just want to be with you. this entire time. So please check it out. Multiple layers in which the church can be involved. Praying certainly is the top one. Reaching out to families that you know that currently are engaged in foster parenting in your neighborhood or in your church can be another great way to get involved and then to prayerfully consider. Check it out. See whether or not this might be right for you and your family. Information available again by calling 1-800-BETHANY. That's 1-800-BETHANY or simply go online to bethany.org. That's bethany.org. And Chris, before our time wraps up, anything else to add to parents out there that for themselves are struggling with maybe some issues at home in relationship to children and what's going on in the world around us today? Sure. We want to be a resource. So I would say, you know, check out Bethany.org. But also, um, it's just a great opportunity for the church to identify, you know, fragile families in their community, especially now. This is the time for the church, the big seat, the church to step up and be the hands and feet of Christ. I look at this as an opportunity. It's a horrible situation we're in, but what a great opportunity to be a living witness of, of Christ, of what Christ has put us here to be. So I would encourage people, followers of Jesus, to step up, and I would say people who are struggling, hey, we're here for you. There are resources, and there are people who want to walk beside you. There are people who want to help you. There are people who want to pray for you, and there are people who want to go through life with you. You're not alone. Chris Polosky is the president and CEO of Bethany Christian Services. More information available by calling toll-free 800-BETHANY. That's 800-B-E-T-H-A-N-Y or going online to bethany.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Uh, somewhat innocuous sounding or obnoxious as the case may be sounding bit of music might seem to have come from some major Hollywood spectacle or maybe even serve as a great theme song for this show some days but in fact it is the theme from one of the best selling video games of all time Call of Duty and I've always marveled at those that will talk about what a wonderful teaching 
tool that computers can be or television and that children can watch a program like uh, Nat Geo and come back with all kinds of great facts and having expanded their horizons and understanding of life and the world and how engaging the computer can be as an educational tool. And yet, out of the very same mouths will come, well, there's no influence whatsoever of violent video games on children. How can you dare even suggest such a thing? Well, which is it going to be, folks? Can media, in particular television and interactive uh, uh, games and so forth, can they teach children or are they not teachers at all? Joining me now with some insights is Dr. Jane Anderson. She served for many years as a pediatrician at Mount Zion Center for uh, UCSF. And uh, Dr. Anderson, always a delight and an education to have you join us on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what, what about this debate? I, I just I never have quite understood, Dr. Anderson, how we can, out of one side of our mouth, suggest that television and computers are a wonderful teaching tool, and the other one say that they, at the same time, have no influence on children who will spend sometimes hundreds of hours over the course of a month engrossed in violent video games that have no other purpose than racking up points killing people. Exactly. It's sort of why why do companies spend two point five, you know, million dollars for a thirty second commercial on the Super Bowl if they don't think it's going to influence our behavior. Precisely. So there the interesting thing for me is that there is so much new information on brain research. And researchers are now using brain scanning tools such as MRIs to evaluate children and teenagers uh, before and after and sometimes during um, the time that they're playing video games to see what happens. So we now have real brain data that shows that areas of our brain that are linked to desensitization to violence are activated during violent video games. We have more longitudinal studies that show us that children who play more video games are more likely to engage in violent behavior. And it doesn't mean that every child who plays video games is going to end up more aggressive, but it certainly plays into the tendencies, and there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, Violence uh, during video games is not just learned and demonstrated. It is repetitively practiced over and over again until you get it right. And then that violence is rewarded, so you get, um, you get to uh, go to higher levels or you get expanded tools of violence, so you get rewarded for your behavior. And, um, and so the violence becomes justified and it becomes, quote, fun. And then worse than that, it's what we call many of the games, like Call of Duty, Mortal Kombat, others, Doom. They are first-person player video games. In other words... When we think of Pac-Man, it was like take a you know take a joystick and make the you know little Pac-Man guy move. Um, you weren't actually Pac-Man, but the first-person player games, you are actually the player, and you see the world through the player's eyes. And that's why um, some of the school shooters had never held guns before. The kids in um, I believe it was Mississippi had in Pearl, Mississippi. That student had never held a gun before, but he'd practiced on video games, and so he was able to have direct hits to students who were running, but he got them with one shot and killed them, which is, you know, better than most, you know, police agencies or soldiers can do, but he'd been practicing. Well, and we've seen cases where military, including our own, 
um, are are extremely interested in talking to uh, potential recruits who have very high marks in video gaming because these same individuals who, as you point out, often have no experience shooting an actual weapon whatsoever, and yet when the gun is put into their hands for the first time, demonstrate remarkable levels of marksmanship. Why? Because the ability to load, reload, aim, and so forth, they've practiced all of that sometimes thousands and times over. I mean, in often cases, uh, Dr. Anderson, I would imagine just in terms of overall experience, albeit not with a real weapon, but still their level of experience is equal to or exceeds even what the police get on the firing range. Oh, sure. I mean, there. Th- one of the studies is from 2004, so it's old now. But boys between 8 and 13 years of age were playing 13 hours a week of video games, and most of those are violent. So although not all video games are violent, 10 of the top 20 game sellers are violent. And it is a multi-billion dollar industry, $11.7 billion um, we're spending. So I always like to tease and say, don't tell me we don't have enough money to do X, Y, (laughs) Z. Excellent point. You make reference to a number of these studies that are out there, the growing body of evidence that suggests that, of course, there's a connection to violence after they've seen and been programmed uh, by this kind of so-called entertainment. I'm curious to find out what the brainwave activity is showing, and most importantly, what needs to be the warning word here. Even after the heels of events like Sandy Hook, we're teaching our children that violence is entertainment, In real life, when we engage in wars that we do, we teach our children that that's the way adults settle disputes. And then when our kids grow up and turn the guns on us or act out violently against us, we wonder what happened to little Johnny that maybe because he wasn't breastfed as a child, he's acting this way. We've trained these kids to behave like this. Why are we as a society surprised? Rhetorical question. Better put, what can we who understand it and get it do to overcome all of this? We'll continue with more of our conversation with Dr. Jane Anderson as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So the um, five or six billion dollar a year video gaming industry says that their um, their entertainment has no influence on children and violent activity whatsoever. Of course, they would probably have um, upwards of five, six billion reasons why they would say that. Dr. Jane Anderson with us today with a bit contrarian insight on this topic. Dr. Anderson, you mentioned about this growing body of evidence, and I know there have literally been thousands of studies that have tied in uh, the, the impact of prolonged exposure to violent video games and the degree to which children who have a history of that as a form of entertainment, acting out in aggressive behavior, involvement in a violent manner with the authority, so on and so forth. What's the response to all of this? What should it be? I mean, we've been talking about this for years and years and years. Outside of parents waking up to certain realities, is it time for the government to begin interceding here and saying, you know what, just like we won't allow kids to see certain classifications of movies, we're not going to allow them to engage in certain classifications of violent video games? Well, you know, um, as much as I'm a conservative politically and I don't like government intrusion generally, 
Um, I think if we compare it to, uh, just like you said, you know, if we compare it to like accessing alcohol or pornography or going into an X-rated movie, I think we can set some limits on children and adolescents. They are still under adult sort of authority, and, and I hate to use the word control, but should be <laughs> under control. So I think, yes, you know, California tried it. We, they passed a law to uh, limit the um, access of teenagers to <clears throat> the most mature rating or the most violent um, video games, but it was defeated by the Supreme Court as a right to um, freedom of speech. Um, but I think if we can limit, you know, sale of uh, pornography, I think we can limit the sale of violent video games. But I really would encourage parents, um, until that time, <laughs> uh, they really have to be aware of um, the, the violence in the video games. And a lot of times it's not noticeable at the lower levels. If they're sitting next to their, you know, uh, teenager, they need to see, well, what's at the higher levels? And I want to really point out to all parents that boys are so susceptible. Uh, the way the boys' brains develop and their exposure to, to testosterone in utero at 12 weeks gestation, their brains develop differently, and they learn by competition and repetition. And that's exactly what video games are. So they're much more likely to become addicted and be influenced by the video games. So... For everybody, limit them, but especially for boys. And, you know, even parents of toddlers out there, the parents of toddlers who are listening and you're probably thinking, oh, well, you know, my kid's not affected by this. You know, you're handing them your iPad, your iPhone to keep them entertained, you know, while you're in the car or at the doctor's office, and you are teaching them that screen time is entertaining and you're not doing what we, we used to do as parents, talking to them while you're, you know, in the car and playing word games and I spy out the window and, you know, helping them be creative and problem solve. And when they're at home, get outdoors and do things outdoors. There's so much that of life that our children are missing out on because um, they're, they're indoors playing video games. So I'd really encourage parents to be aware, keep computers, video games, consoles, everything out of the kids' bedrooms. We have documented evidence that children who have computers and TVs and games and stuff in their bedrooms, they do worse in school, they have more problems with obesity, they sleep less, they have more behavioral problems. Like there are things that parents can do. You know, and the other thing that dawns on me as you were sharing the notion of not engaging children in, in the healthy way, that, that kids of my generation, we had no choice. None of this stuff existed in those days. I think we barely had the electric light. Uh, but we, we tend to then train kids to be very inward-looking as opposed to outward-looking. There, there's no sense of wonder and awe about the world around them. It's all limited to, you know, the 13-inch diagonally measured screen of the computer in front of them. And, you know, I, I think that, that that, you know, not only leads to a tremendous degree of, of, of a false, distorted, sort of just two-degree, uh, two-dimensional, rather, view of the world uh, in spite of the best efforts at 3D. But, but then, too, Dr. Anderson, I mean, isn't there a degree to which there is a chemical high that kids get off of this, not just as they're advancing and they're making more points and they're able to, you know, engage in, in, in more points for more kills and things of this sort. But aren't we kind of – there's got to be sort of a, a brain chemical reaction to engaging in this violence through a video game. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's, that's where addictions come in, and there are definitely – 
you know, teenagers who and, and young, especially young young men, young men who are addicted to video games, and the addiction comes from the pleasurable response, and unfortunately. There's there's like a gate in our brain, and it's only going to let through certain sensations. So, for instance, if I'm sitting here, I'm not paying attention necessarily to where my feet are or what smells are in the room or whatever. The brain um, determines what is sensational, what is new, what is innovative and creative, and it lets those sensations through, which is why you have to have sort of different, more creative worse violence at the higher levels using worse vet weapons because that keeps that excitement and that adrenaline going and it allows your brain to take in that sensation and then it stimulates your dopaminergic system and um, that's what contributes to this need for more and more. No, just as much as we see the same thing played out in real life that oftentimes children who engage or, or adults who engage in violent behavior then do new, need to go higher and higher exactly. and higher in order to re- receive sort of the, the same kind of uh, chemicals uh, in, in enjoyment out that's of it. That's exactly right. So it ought to be easy for parents to connect the dots, folks. So let's start connecting the dots. Now, urging our government at the state level and federal level to start putting bans and restrictions and tighter controls on this, age restrictions, things of that sort is very important. But I guess at the end of the day, uh, Dr. Anderson, it really comes down to the parents, doesn't it? It really does. And the video game industry does have ratings on the video game. So pay attention, you know, look on the box. You know, does it say E for everyone or does it say M for mature audiences only? And it will say on there if it's sexual, if it's violent, if it's, you know, um, if there's foul language, it'll say on there. So look and read. Um, Teenagers tell you their parents might set rules for the TV viewing, but they don't set rules for video game playing. Well, set some rules and set some guidelines. Meet with the teenagers hey, what do you think you're doing when you're, you're playing video games? What, be, what activities are you not participating in? Oh, you know, you're not outdoors exercising and playing on a team. And boys, by the way, learn so much about the real world by playing on a sports team. So, you know, get your, and girls do too, but boys more so, get your guys out there playing, um, you know, reading, being creative. You know, it used to be kids would go outdoors and create the rules to a game, and they'd be creative. You know, you be this, I'll be that. And now it's just, you know, I'll sit here and sit side by side with my friend, and we'll both, you know, play video games together. It's like, no, there are so many wonderful alternatives, and the evidence is overwhelming in so many arenas of life, whether it's the physical development of the child, the emotional development, the cognitive development, even developing empathy and compassion, our brains develop that by looking at someone else's facial expression. Well, you can't see those changes when you're in front of a screen. How far we've come from the day and age when I was a kid and they couldn't get us to come back indoors, and today we can't get them to go outdoors. Our thanks to Dr. Jane Anderson for being with us in this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, 
Grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.